Welcome to Ragbags Bonus Bag. My name is Frank Burton. This is what we've all been waiting for, right? It's my new audiobook played for you in full over the next five days. This is Getting Away With It. The book, by the way, is available to buy from Amazon as a Kindle book or as a real book, you know, paper, paper book. Audiobook version can be downloaded from frankburton.bandcamp.com. All the links are in the show notes. But here is the book right now. Chapter 1 This story begins on September the 14th, 1998. I was 18 years old. It was the day I left home. It was the day I started university in Manchester. It was the day I met Jenna. I'd followed a bunch of fellow freshers from my halls of residence down to the student union bar where a whole crowd of newly adulted men and women were clutching their beers, nervously bantering and frantically attempting to figure out what was cool in this new environment. I didn't say anything, just attached myself to a group, hanging slightly back so I wouldn't actually have to converse with anyone. Perhaps, I wondered, I could get through the next three years employing this strategy. No one would even know my name. They'd recognise me as that guy. This was all going fine until we got to the bar. I crept out from my hiding place behind the huddle of bodies to buy myself a drink. How's it going? said a voice next to me. I assumed she was talking to someone else. Oi, said the voice, you. Yeah, I said casually, turning my head slightly. I said, how's it going? Good, I said, weird but good. Weird but good, weird but good, she sang back at me. I hadn't realised, but the DJ was playing Ebenezer Good by The Shaman. I smiled and looked at her properly. Dry ice, she said. What's the deal with that? What are they trying to achieve? It's a bar, not an 80s music video. And what's the deal with the music? When's this from? 1991, I said. Maybe 92. So, this is supposed to make us feel nostalgic or something? I like it, I said. What else do you like? She said. I don't know. You don't know? Come on, man. Try harder than that. We're going to be friends. You need to tell me some things about yourself. For a start, what are you drinking? You're buying? Yes, I'm buying. You'll buy the next round. I'll have a Coke, I said. No, you won't. My new friend ordered two double vodkas with orange. That's the complete opposite of what I wanted, I said. Hurry up, she said. Table's free. She grabbed both glasses and darted across the room to a small table by the window with a pair of tall stools. I was seriously tempted to walk right out of the bar and spend the rest of the night in my room, but she bought me a drink. When I got to the table, she was lighting a cigar. What's that? I said. What does it look like? I shrugged. Thanks for the drink. Let's get down to business. What's your name? Frank. I said. What kind of name is that? Are you 80 years old? I'm named after my dad. Fine. I'll have to think of some kind of variation. Frankie, maybe. Franklin. Franco. I'd rather not be named after a dictator. Frankie it is. I'm Jenna. Pleased to meet you. Yeah, I said. 
Listen, she said, stop talking like you don't want to be here. Have an actual drink. It'll loosen you up. Are you teetotal or something? My mum's an alcoholic, I said. She put me off. Sorry to hear that, said Jenna. But you don't live with your mother anymore. You have to do things on your own terms. And by the way, don't drink Coca-Cola. They're evil. That sounds a lot like your terms rather than mine, I said. I'm just giving you my opinion, Frankie. You should listen to me. I'm very intelligent. What are you studying? Doctorate in criminology. Doctor what? Doctorate. Oh, you're doing a PhD. You're not even a first year. I'm a first year PhD student, she said. That's kind of the same thing. I'm the same as you. I don't know anyone else here, but I do know that you and I are going to be friends. What makes you so sure of that? I have a sixth sense for these things. I have very few friends because I rarely see someone I like the look of. I looked at you and I felt something. Did you? Nothing sexual, she said firmly. Let's get that out of the way right now. We're not going to sleep together. It'll ruin our friendship. Right. Will you cheer up, for God's sake? Have a drink. Trust me, it'll relax you. I took a large mouthful of vodka and orange. That's the spirit, she said. I pulled her face. You'll get used to the taste, she said, knocking her glass back in one shot. Hurry up, it's your round. That cigar stinks, I said. So does your attitude. It's your round, slow coach. I finished my drink on the way to the bar. She was right. Even by the second mouthful, I was developing a taste for it. I ordered two more. You don't look old enough to be doing a PhD, I said. I'm 24, she said. That's ancient compared to all the whippersnappers in here. Whippersnappers, I said. Yeah, that's a good word. Oh, you like words, do you? Good. What else do you like? What are you studying? English lit, I said. Ah, of course you are, she said. She rested her cigar in the ashtray, placed both her elbows on the table and crossed both sets of fingers, waggling them in the air. What are you doing, I said. Tell me, she said. What do you intend to do with your English lit degree? Maybe not all that much, I said. I want to be a writer. Jenna uncrossed her fingers and leapt off her seat in an exaggerated cheer. I knew it! You're a writer! She kissed me on the cheek. Nice one, mate. I knew it. I knew as soon as I saw you, you have a writerly vibe. Really? Yes, you do. That's a compliment, by the way. Thanks. You better not drink too much, she said. Too late, I said, waggling my glass. I have a taste for this stuff now. As long as you remember this, right now, this conversation, you'll write about this one day, you'll write about the day we met. How do you know? I can tell. I can tell we're going to be friends, and I can tell that our friendship will have some kind of story to it. It's impossible to know at this stage what that story might involve, but trust me, Frankie, this is an important day in your life, and not because this is the day you left home or the day you started your degree. This is the day you met Jenna McIntyre. What's your surname, Frankie? Burton, I said. Today is an important day for me too. It's the day I met the famous writer, Frankie Burton. I'm not famous, I said. Yet, she said. Yet.
Chapter 2 Jenna slept on the floor in my room that night. I wanted to be the gentleman and sleep there myself. She roared with laughter at my use of the term gentleman. She said that was a stupid word and anyway she enjoyed sleeping on the floor. As a matter of fact, human beings weren't designed to sleep on a soft surface. Fine, I said, I'll be the comfortable one. We stayed up talking for a while. I ended up telling her a few stories about my childhood. In the morning, we sat and had breakfast together in the communal kitchen, catching the eye of several of my fellow residents. It wasn't until Jenna had gone home that I realised everyone had made the assumption that Jenna and I had slept together last night. And you're a dark horse, eh? said one of the lads from my corridor. You hardly said a word to anyone yesterday. You've got style, man. Who is she? Her name's Jenna. I said she's a PhD student. Well, hats off to you, man. We're just friends, I said casually. Ah, oh, just friends, yeah, yeah, right. He shook me by the hand. You're doing well for yourself there, mate. You'll probably have a different one in here tonight. Maybe, I said. I had to admit I was enjoying being mistaken for a ladies' man. The truth was I was totally inexperienced and I'd been expecting the stigma of my virginity to be written all over my face. Instead, everyone just assumed I'd got lucky with a 24-year-old cigar-smoking postgraduate. There was no way I was going to correct the error. Suddenly, I was popular. I'd never been popular before. That afternoon, a bunch of my new friends invited me down to the student union bar. The room looked totally different when it was half empty, with daylight streaming through the windows and no dry ice. I ordered a double vodka and orange. Someone told me that was a girl's drink. Someone else said, yeah, exactly, that's how he gets all the girls. This was fun. Then Jenna walked in. I hardly recognised her. She had her hair tied up and was wearing a business suit. She walked right past me, strolled up to the bar then smiled at me over her shoulder with a little wave. I went over to join her. Your friends all think we slept together, don't they? She said. Kind of. Let's keep up the pretense, shall we? Put your arm around me. I slipped my hand awkwardly around her waist. You can do better than that, she said, and kissed me on the lips. This is fun, isn't it? I thought there was nothing sexual between us, I whispered. There isn't, she said. Trust me, I'm making you look cool. Why don't you come over and join us, I said. She shook her head. I have no interest in fraternising with your teenage friends. Anyway, I'm not here to drink. I popped in for a takeaway coffee. But I'm glad I ran into you, Frankie. I want to show you something. What's that, I said. You'll see. What are you all dressed up for? Are you working? In a manner of speaking, yes. What does that mean? Shh, no more questions. Jenna took her polystyrene cup and led me out of the bar, arm in arm. I nodded at my new friends as we left, and they gave us a cheer. Jenna pretended to blush. Let's go for a walk, she said. We need to get off campus. What for? An experiment. We set off walking towards the centre of town. Last night was fun, I said. It was, wasn't it? I'm glad I met you, Jenna. Likewise. Jenna seemed distracted. She kept turning her head to watch the passing cars. Are you going to tell me what this experiment involves, then? It's related to my thesis, she said. It's all about what people perceive as being legal and illegal.
not the actual law itself, but the general public's interpretation of it. Actually, that isn't what the thesis is all about. It's about lots of other things as well, but this is one component. Sounds interesting. It's fascinating, actually. Jenna stopped walking and faced the road, her head turning from right to left, as though she intended to cross. But when a gap appeared in the traffic, she remained standing there. Do you watch TV? she said. I'm a bit more into music, I suppose, I said. But you've seen TV shows, right? And films? A few. So you'll be familiar with how cop shows work? Maybe. And car chases, yeah? When the police are in pursuit of a criminal, but they don't have a vehicle with them, you'll often see them step in front of a moving car and hold up their identification. Then the car will stop and the driver will get out and the cops will say something like, Police, we're commandeering this vehicle. And the driver will toss them the keys and let them drive off with their car. This is the way it always happens. You never hear the driver say, Actually, officer, I'm kind of in a hurry here. Could you take someone else's car, please? You never hear them question the officer's credentials. They're happy to see a flash of their badge, and that seems to be enough proof that they aren't dealing with a fraudster. Also, you never hear them question the legality of the officer's actions. You never hear them say, Actually, I'm not entirely sure you have a legal right to commandeer my vehicle. This is my property. They just go along with it every single time. I've only ever seen Americans do that, I said. Funny you should say that, said Jenna. As it happens, in this country, the police do have the power to commandeer your vehicle in pursuit of a suspect, but it virtually never happens. It's just not the done thing. You could say it's not part of the culture, and therefore it would indeed look out of place on a British cop show. But because we've all been brought up on American film and TV, we get muddled up about which culture is which. I've lost count of the number of times I've sparked up a Cuban cigar and someone has piped up, oh, you can't have that, what about the embargo? I'll have to explain to them there's no laws against smoking Cuban cigars in this country. Or any time you see someone impersonating a judge, order, Jenna bashed an imaginary gavel in the air. You know what's wrong with that impression? I don't know, I said. You weren't wearing a wig? The gavel, she said. English judges don't use gavels. American judges do. I could go on for ages with these examples. You get the point. So the experiment. Yeah, for our experiment. Let's go back to that first example. You and I, Frankie, are going to commandeer someone's vehicle. We're going to what? A second later, Jenna stepped into the middle of the road, pulled something out of her pocket and flashed it at an approaching car. The driver slammed on his brakes. He opened his window, stuck his head out. Can I help you? He said. I'm sorry, sir, I had to commandeer this vehicle. I'm in pursuit of an armed suspect. The man immediately jumped out of his car and gestured to the open driver's door. Be my guest, he said. Come on, Jenna gestured for me to jump into the passenger seat. I obeyed her. I nodded at the driver as I passed him. Student intern, said Jenna by way of an explanation. Show him your NUS card. There's no need for that, said the man. On your way, officer. Here's my card. Just give me a call when the vehicle's been of use to you. 
The man handed me his business card. He was a double glazing salesman, as it turns out. And we sped off round the corner and out of sight, leaving him standing looking aimless at the side of the road. I was speechless for a while. Jenna was giggling hysterically. Are you going to fasten your seatbelt? I said at last. Is that what a cop on a high-speed chase would do? I expect so, yes, given that high-speed chases are actually quite dangerous. Is this an actual high-speed chase? No, but... It's very nice of you to be concerned about me, Frankie. I like the fact that you're more concerned about my seatbelt than you are about the fact that we've just broken at least two laws. Not wearing a seatbelt's illegal as it happens. Okay, let's call it three laws. Impersonating a police officer, stealing a car and driving without due care and attention. She took her hands off the wheel and fastened her belt. Whoa, I said, I thought you might pull over first. Pull over? This is a high-speed chase. No, it isn't. Jenna giggled some more. Listen, mate, I said, I'm not really comfortable with any of this. Don't you find it fascinating, she said. It happened just like I said it would. How old was that guy? Forties? Fifties? No doubt he's seen a few things in his life. He's not some gullible kid. But as soon as he sees a woman in a suit flashing a silver badge at him, which, by the way, is a replica of an NYPD badge and looks nothing like the identification for Greater Manchester Police, as soon as he sees the badge and hears the words commandeer your vehicle, he knows what he has to do. He gets out of his car and he gives me the keys. He even bought my explanation that I was pursuing an armed robber accompanied by a work experience kid. Is that why you asked me to do this, I said, to see if the driver would buy it? No, I invited you along because I like you, said Jenna. And I did it in spite of the fact that the experiment was less likely to work. Also, I thought you might enjoy it. I smiled. Well, I said. Come on, she chuckled. <laughs> Admit it, this is fun, Frankie. This is a lot more fun than sitting in that student union bar. I guarantee those kids will have run out of conversation already and will have to resort to playing pool or something. Stop calling them kids, Jenna. They're men and women who happen to be a bit younger than you. I don't mean to be insulting, Frankie. I know you're not like them. You're more suited to hanging around with someone like me, who's more on your wavelength. Where are we going? I said. I don't know, she said. I didn't really plan this far ahead. But you know what? We have a full tank of petrol here. We could go anywhere we want. Where would you like to go? Scotland, I said, without hesitation. I surprised myself as much as I surprised Jenna. Wow, she said. You didn't even have to think about that. Well, I've never been there, I said. I used to go on holiday to Wales with my mum as a kid, before the drinking took over and everything. Haven't been anywhere for years. And I've never been to Scotland. Always wanted to go. Looks beautiful in the pictures. Also, I always love train spotting. The book or the film? Or the activity? The book, I said. I don't think I'll ever be able to write that well. Not realism, anyway. I prefer just making things up. Things that couldn't possibly exist. 
You'll write about real life one day, said Jenna. Like I said to you yesterday, you'll write about this one day. You'll write about how we met and then you'll definitely have to write about us stealing a car and driving it to Scotland. What? So that's where we're going? I told you, we can go wherever we want. So you want to go to Scotland? We'll go to Scotland. Thanks, Jenna. No problem. Chapter 3 A few hours later, Jenna and I were sitting on a patch of grass, watching the sunset over Hadrian's Wall. I can't really believe I'm here, I said. I know it's not all that far away in the grand scheme of things, but I don't know. You felt trapped for a long time, she said, and now you're free. Yes, I said, that's what I was trying to say. Remember that, she said. You're free to do whatever you want. I'll be honest, I said. I appreciate you taking me on this trip, but as I said earlier, I don't feel comfortable about breaking the law. If I carry on like this, I won't be free for long. Listen, she said. I'm sorry I roped you into all this. I should have checked with you first, but then if I had checked with you first, you'd have said no, and we wouldn't be here. Also, it's not like we're stealing the car permanently. We'll give it back, no harm done. It's still too much of a risk for me, I said. Call me square, but that's the way I feel. I understand, said Jenna. I'll tell you what, next time I want to break the law, and trust me there will be a next time, I'll check with you first. I won't make you an accomplice in something you're not 100% willing to involve yourself with. Why? What are you planning? Don't know exactly yet. This is all part of my studies, believe it or not. What I've become particularly fascinated by is, well, you know I told you that public perception of legality is just one small aspect of my thesis. The main focus is going to be on one specific crime. It probably isn't something you'll have heard of unless you're in the business of visiting conspiracy-based websites. Conspiracy? You mean like UFOs and faking the moon landings and stuff? That's a general idea, she said, but this particular story happens to be true. Have you heard of the three-strop group? What does that mean? Three-strop doesn't mean anything. It's a made-up word. I think they just wanted to confuse the police. Anyway, in 1985, the three-strop group pulled off one of the most audacious criminal acts of all time. So why haven't I heard of them? It went unreported in the press. Total media blackout. This may sound like part of some made-up conspiracy theory, which is why you'll only ever see the three-stop group mentioned on conspiracy sites instead of history books. In actual fact, the media blackout was simple common sense. The group's trick was so simple and so relatively easy for copycats to reproduce again and again on grander and grander scales that the only way to stop that from happening was to pretend it never happened at all. What happened exactly? They held the Eiffel Tower hostage. Of course they did. I realised how unlikely that sounds, but here's how they did it. 
On the 18th of January 1985, the Parisian police received a phone call at midnight informing them that the Eiffel Tower was about to be destroyed unless a negotiation took place immediately. The caller claimed the tower had been fitted with explosives at various key structural points. All it would take would be the touch of a button and the building would fall to the ground in an immensely violent and dramatic fashion. The police were assured this was not a joke. The three-strop group had several men working on the inside. They had been employed within the tower's maintenance crew for a number of years. Tonight's events had taken many years of planning and now it was happening. Tonight was the night. The police asked what the group's demands were. They were told the tower needed to be evacuated immediately. The caller was fully aware which members of the tower's security staff were in the building at the time and listed them by name. For their own safety, these people would need to leave the building. Likewise, the buildings in the surrounding area would also need to be cleared of any occupants. No one needed to know the reason. Blame it on a gas leak if you like, suggested the caller. There is no need to spread panic and alarm. This is not an act of terrorism. This is a simple act of extortion. We will discuss details further when the area is evacuated. Do not make any attempt to locate and deactivate the explosive devices in the tower. If anyone even starts making a move like this, the explosives will detonate and the tower will be no more. Jenna had been gazing into the sunset while telling this tale. She turned to me as though remembering I was there. She said, Let me ask you, Frankie, if you were responsible for the Eiffel Tower's security, how would you respond to a threat like that? I'd evacuate, I said. Of course you would, Jenna agreed. It's the only thing to do. You have no way of knowing if those explosives are there or not. But it seems like a credible claim, and to not evacuate would be risking lives, not to mention risking the tower itself, at least in theory. Is that what they did? It is indeed. They didn't just evacuate the tower, they evacuated the whole square kilometre around it. A huge undertaking, at least a thousand people. And one thing that's absolutely fascinating about that was, when the area was being evacuated, the official explanation was a gas leak. Just as the caller had suggested, it was an obvious lie because for one thing, no one could smell any gas. It was as though the authorities were so shaken up by the threat to their city and its emblematic centrepiece that they were unwilling to deviate from the criminals' demands, even a throwaway comment that seemed to be more of a helpful suggestion. Yes, I said, that's interesting. Around 2am, said Jenna, the area had officially been cleared of all people. A negotiator was in place, ready to talk to the three-strop group's caller. The call came through to the Parisian police. The negotiator joined the call. Lots of other parties were involved by this point. Interpol, secret services, backup forces brought in from other cities. This was nothing short of a national emergency. Rumour has it that François Mitterrand, who was president at the time, was there in the room. The negotiator asked what the three-strop group wanted. He was told, one billion francs. That is all. If we have 
one billion francs we can comfortably retire and never have to pull a stunt like this again. Please consider this request very carefully. We are fully aware that we could easily ask for more. The building we have taken hostage is worth more than a billion francs in the hearts of the people of Paris, not to mention the actual monetary amount this building generates for the tourist industry alone. Most importantly of all, this building is a key part of French culture and French history. If we kill the Eiffel Tower, and trust me, if we do not receive our one billion francs, this is exactly what we will do. We won't just be killing a building, we will be effectively killing an entire nation. But how do we know that the building actually has explosives inside? If you won't allow us to at least verify that your claims are correct, how can we possibly take these threats seriously? The caller replied calmly. The police have been faxed an in-depth report on the exact type of explosives that will potentially be used to destroy the Eiffel Tower. Their exact locations are detailed there too. I presume you people have some experts on hand who can verify that? Indeed, said the negotiator, we have verified that the type of explosives you claim to have planted in the locations you sent in that document would indeed cause the building to be destroyed. At the very least, it shows you've done your research. But that doesn't answer my question. How do we know that you're telling the truth? You don't, said the caller. That's the risk that you take. If there are no explosives and you pay up, you'll have been swindled out of one billion francs. If the explosives are there and you pay up, you'll still have been swindled, but it will be clear you've made the right choice. Now let's say you don't pay and there's no explosives. Well done. You successfully guessed that we were bluffing. You still took a huge risk. You risked the symbolic death of the entire country, even if no human lives were potentially going to be lost. Then there's the final option. You don't pay up and the Eiffel Tower falls down and all of this could have been prevented using what initially seemed like a lot of money but actually in the grand scheme of things is very little compared to the death of France. That's what they'll be calling it in all the bulletins, all the papers, all the subsequent books and documentaries, maybe not in this country but everywhere else in the world, the world will know that France is dead. All because the local authorities took a stupid risk and failed. It sounds like you've given us a lot to think about, said the negotiator. Think quickly, said the caller. You have until 6am. If no decision has been made by 6am, the Eiffel Tower will be no more. Once again, if anyone attempts to enter the building, the explosives will be detonated. The caller hung up and called back requesting an update every 15 minutes. The caller was repeatedly told they needed more time to discuss the matter until finally, at 4.15am, the negotiator took the call from the group's spokesperson, who by the way was never identified as being either male or female, and told them that the government wished to accept the offer of 1 billion francs 
to be handed over on the understanding that the threat against the Eiffel Tower be immediately withdrawn. There followed some further negotiations over how the catch would be transferred and so on, all of which led to the inevitable conclusion that the three-stroke group were paid exactly what they'd asked for. There was no negotiation on the figure they demanded. By all accounts, little or no attempt was made to apprehend the culprits. By some point in the early morning decision-making, the conclusion had been reached that the most important objective was preventing any public knowledge of the threats made against the Eiffel Tower. As insane as it sounded, it would be better to allow the three-struck group to get away scot-free than to arrest and charge them. Their crimes would then be a matter of public record. So they gave them the money, I said, and they took it, and then what? That was that? Exactly, said Jenna, that was that. The group were as good as their word. They were happy with their winnings, and they never attempted a similar crime, or so the story goes. None of that last part is provable, as no one knows who they are. I guess there's a chance they could have been tracked down and killed by secret services, and the public would be none the wiser. How do we know that any of this is true? I said. All we have is the anonymously published accounts of people who were there at the time. These accounts have been censored to death over the years. But now we have the internet, which no one's figured out how to censor yet. As far as I'm concerned, it's as true as anything else. Maybe I just like the story. It is a good story, I agreed. And here's the thing, she said. It sounds incredibly plausible. Doesn't mean it happened. That doesn't matter in a way, she said. The fact is, it could have happened. Those events could easily have taken place in the precise way that I just described. We could do it, you know. Oh, here we go, I said. What do you mean, here we go? First you wrote me into stealing a car, then you butter me up with a story about some mythical criminal masterminds, and then you spring this on me. Let's do our own heist, Frank. And there you have it. You've recruited me in less than 24 hours. As I said those words, I realised how true it was. I'd known Jenna for less than a day, and yet somehow she'd already become the most important person in my life. I'm not trying to recruit you, she said quietly. I'm just shooting the breeze, Frankie. Sorry, I didn't mean to come across as some low life. I definitely wouldn't call you that, I said. Good, she said. I'm just saying, hypothetically, and just go with me on this because it's purely a thought experiment, right? Hypothetically, we could hold this thing hostage. She gestured in the general direction of Hadrian's wall. We could use the exact same approach, the exact same techniques. I guess it would have been easier to pull off back in the 80s when surveillance was less sophisticated and maybe it was easier to make anonymous calls without a line being traced. But if we got the technology right, I mean, there's all sorts of ways around it. 
the call wouldn't even have to be made from within the country. If you have a good team together, the person making the call doesn't need to be anywhere near the site. I can see you've thought about this, I said. Yes, I have. So this is something you're genuinely considering? Only as a hypothesis. I'm telling you now, I said, there is absolutely no way I would get involved in anything like that. So if the purpose of this conversation is to convince me to join some kind of replica of the three-strop group, please count me out. Go back to that bar and pick up some other mug. That's not what this is, said Jenna. I don't think of you that way. How do you think of me then? I told you, she said, we're friends. Don't be paranoid about it. You may not have had a friend like me before, but you've got one now. So that's the end of the matter. I told you, we are going to be friends for a long time. How do you know that? I just know, okay? Right. Okay. Chapter 4 Halfway through the drive back to Manchester, just as I was nodding off to sleep in the passenger seat, Jenna said, By the way, if I was going to pull off something like the Eiffel Tower thing, first of all, I wouldn't keep the money. I really don't need a billion quid. No one does, apart from charitable organisations who'd really benefit from it. Secondly, I wouldn't go for something high profile like the Eiffel Tower. I'd go for something much more low-key, in a more isolated location, with fewer people to evacuate from their homes. There's hundreds of historical sites in this country that are of huge symbolic value, but have little or no security attached. Think of all the castles and cathedrals you could easily get a job working for. Then you could be my inside man. You can give me all the info I need to make that call. Jenna, I said. It's just an idea, she said. Go back to sleep. We dropped the car off at the driver's business address as detailed on his card. Jenna shoved the keys through the company's letterbox and left a voicemail message from a payphone outside thanking the driver for the use of his vehicle and yes, the armed robber had indeed been apprehended thanks to his selfless contribution to law enforcement. I had no idea where I was but Jenna assured me we were fairly close to my new halls of residence. She walked back there with me. I'll see you soon, she said. Yeah, I said. I guess you'll be down the bar or something. Do you want my phone number? I have nothing to write it down with, I said. She grinned. Call yourself a writer? We laughed. Also, I don't have a phone to call you with. Oh, for God's sake, I'll just see you in the bar. As it happened, Jenna and I didn't cross paths until two weeks later. It wasn't in the bar this time, it was in the library. This was my first time in there. It was yet to sink in that I'd gone to university to study English literature. I'd gone in there by accident. I was looking for a vending machine. Seeing as there wasn't one there, I was about to try a different room. Then someone kicked me on the back of the legs. My immediate instinct was to apologise for getting in this person's way. Then I turned around and saw it was Jenna and she'd done it on purpose. 
Hello, mate, she said. Where have you been hiding? I said. In here, mostly. I suppose you do have a lot of reading to do. And you don't? I'm still getting my bearings, I said. It's good to see you. I should actually take your number this time, then we can go for a drink. Sounds good, she said, as she jotted her number down on the page from her notebook. She tore the page off and handed it to me. But let's stay away from that union bar. It's full of 18-year-olds. I happen to be 18, I said. Not when you're with me. You could pass for 21 at the very least. There's plenty of places in town, away from the student crowd. OK, I said. How about tonight? I'll be done here by 6 o'clock, she said. I'll meet you back here. Cool, I said, and headed for the door. Frankie, she called after me. Just a suggestion, but you might actually find some good books in this place. Ah, I said. Very good. I'll come back when I've got an essay to write. Later that evening, Jenna and I sat in a crowded bar somewhere in the city centre, watching some old men play pool. So how's university life treating you? She said as she puffed on her cigar. Found yourself a girlfriend yet? Nah, I said casually. Slept with anyone yet? I shrugged. Couple of people? How was that? Oh, you know. It being your first couple of times and everything? How did you know? I said. I have a knack for spotting these things. You don't need to thank me, by the way. Thank you for what? For boosting your image, allowing everyone to think that we were together that first night. If I hadn't stayed over at your place, you'd still be a virgin now. That's how these things work. Are you sure that's what would have happened? Listen, she said, you don't know this because you're blind to these things. But I'm actually a very attractive woman. I'm sure you are, I said. As I say, you're blind to these things. You're not a superficial person. Also, I kind of think of you as the big sister I never had. I'll take that as a compliment. Which is why I feel a little uncomfortable with people thinking I slept with you. You'll get over it, she said. Just tell me how it went. How what went? You know, with those two girls. If you must know, on both occasions it was pretty awkward and embarrassing, and now that I've done it, I'd rather just leave it at that. You obviously haven't met the right girl yet. I don't need to meet the right girl. I've gone through that rite of passage now. Sex for me is just a once or twice in a lifetime thing, like mumps or skydiving. As I say, she said, you haven't met the right girl. Do you believe in all that love stuff yourself? I said. Why wouldn't I? You don't seem all that romantic for a start. What's romance got to do with anything? Well, do you have a boyfriend then? I've always assumed not, seeing as you've never mentioned one. Not exactly. Girlfriend? I'm having an affair with a married man. She said it so casually it sounded like a joke. I studied her expression for a while. Oh, right, I said. You're serious. Um, how's that working out for you? It's going amazingly well, she said, without hesitation. Perfectly, almost. 
He gets what he wants from it, I get what I want, and we're both very good liars, so no one's going to get hurt. I'm friends with his wife. She's happy too. She doesn't know it, but I'm the glue that's holding their marriage together. I realise this probably sounds bad. I didn't say that. It does though, doesn't it? It sounds like I'm a devious homewrecker, he's a love rat, and she's a victim. That's what we've all been brought up to believe, but none of us are any of those things. We complement each other perfectly. I'm glad that you're happy, I said. We had another couple of drinks. Then Jenna said, So, have you had any thoughts about all that stuff we talked about the other day? No, I haven't, I said. You know the stuff I mean, right? She said, getting a team together, holding some buildings hostage. Oh, so it's it's some buildings now, is it? I said, a whole series of them. Why not? I can think of several reasons. Several or just one? Personally, I can only think of one drawback and that's the law. We'll have to do it right. Carry out the job properly, just like the three-strop group did. Do the research. Make sure those calls are completely untraceable. Look, it's a fun topic of conversation, I said. I'll happily talk to you about it as much as you like, but let's be realistic. This is never going to happen. I agree, she said. It is a great subject for conversation. And yes, let's keep it as that. Every time I bring it up, you start freaking out about the idea of me roping you in to an actual concrete plan. Let's not concern ourselves with whether that will happen or not. Let's just enjoy ourselves. So that's what we did. We spent hours chatting about potential targets, strategies, how much money we'd ask for, which charities the proceeds would be split between. We talked about lots of other things too. Time went by so quickly, it took me completely by surprise when I heard the call for last orders. I realised the pub was now empty, apart from the two of us, plus the bar staff. We had one for the road, then Jenna took me back to her place. It was just a short walk away. I was expecting a pokey studio apartment or a lodging in someone's spare room, but it turned out Jenna had her own four-bedroom house. Is this your parents' place? I said as I wandered around the big massive living room. I don't have parents, she said. This is my house. Who do you live here with then? No one. Like I say, it's my place. Wow. Nice, isn't it? You must have some serious parties. Never, she said. Like I was saying, I don't have many friends and don't have much time for partying. People rarely come here. What about your boyfriend, I said, the married one? He prefers to meet in hotels, she said, or his place. It's fine, as I say, I'm friends with his wife. I don't understand, I said. If you can come to theirs, how come they don't come to yours? It's complicated, really, she said. They're not the sort of people who would come to this sort of house. I know you think this is a big expensive house, Frankie. But that's only because you haven't seen their place. I'll take you there one day. You'll write about it. You won't be able to resist. Oh, I said with a sly grin. 
Your boyfriend is rich. I'm not with him for his money, she said. I have my own money, plenty of it. I'm just with him for fun. And maybe he needs someone like me in his life. Hang on, so you're rich too? Not as rich as him, but sure, I'm comfortable. I don't have to worry about paying the bills. And I'm not interested in gaining any more than I've already got. So where did you get your money from? In inheritance or something? She shook her head. When you said you don't have parents. Oh, they're not dead, she said. I kind of disowned them. We never talk and they never give me anything. I don't really want to talk about my parents at the moment. I've had a good night. It'll totally kill the mood if we get into all of that. Okay, don't tell me about your parents. Tell me how you came to be rich. Don't tell me you held a building to ransom. Jenna laughed. I didn't, she said. It's actually a very long story, so I won't tell you about that either. I'm getting tired, to be honest. Yeah, me too. Also, I can't walk in a straight line, so maybe a lie down will do me some good. She took me up to the guest room where a king-sized bed was already made up for me. I flopped straight into it and pulled the duvet up to my chin. There's plenty of room for you too, I said. Nice try, she said. Not like that, I said. I told you, you're my sister. Just to lie and talk some more. I'm all talked out, she said. It's been a pleasure though, Frankie, as always. Thanks, I said. She blew me a kiss and turned to leave the room. You know, Jenna, I called after her with my eyes closed. I've kind of disowned my parents too. They're completely useless and I'd be happy never to see them again. I'm pretty sure they feel the same way about me and that's fine. I don't have any siblings. All I've left behind or a handful of friends from my old school who I was happy to see the back of. As for my new friends, I think you're right. They're fine and everything, but they're not my kind of people. The only person in this world who actually means something to me is you, Jenna. You are all I've got. So I just wanted to say thank you for being you, and thank you for finding me in the way that you did. She turned out the light. Good night, Frankie, she said. She may have said something else, but a second later, I was fast asleep. I woke at 3am when my stomach made a sudden lurch. I managed to find my way to the bathroom and threw my guts up noisily before creeping back to my king-size bed. I remembered what I'd said to Jenna just before she turned out the light. Suddenly, I wish I could have taken it back. How much did I really know her anyway? Should I really have told her she was everything to me, or whatever it was I said? Anyway, I'd said it now. We were both drunk. I couldn't remember the precise words I'd used. Maybe she wouldn't remember it at all. She made me breakfast the following morning and I couldn't help asking, Can you remember what I said to you last night, just before you turned out the light? Kind of, 
she said. I hope I didn't embarrass myself, I said. All I remember is you said something nice to me, which made me feel special and confirmed my suspicion that the two of us are set to be good friends. I don't see what's embarrassing about that. That's good. So, we're okay then? Yes, mate, of course we're okay. Chill out. Chapter 5 I staggered back to my halls of residence and fell asleep again. I woke up feeling sick again and threw my breakfast up into the sink. So, this was what a proper hangover felt like. I'd always assumed you had to party all night to end up feeling this bad. All I'd done was sit at a table and had a civilised chat with my friend for a few hours. True, I'd lost count of how many drinks we'd had, but that's because I was a little too caught up in the conversation. Well, that was it. I decided to take a break from drinking. I needed to get a job to help me pay my way through university. I had a small student loan, which wouldn't last for long. I didn't want to ask my parents for any kind of financial help. As it happens, I now had a comparatively rich friend, but I didn't feel right asking Jenna for support either. I applied for a job as a hotel porter. They offered me some night shifts. I said I'd happily take as many nights as possible. I didn't mention the fact that I was a student. I hadn't shaved since leaving home and my beard was starting to look impressive. I could easily have been a few years older. At the interview, I dropped some vague suggestions that I had responsibilities and a family to support. I guess that if I gave them the impression that I was a parent who wanted to provide for his kids rather than an 18-year-old who fancied some beer money, I'd be more likely to get my foot in the door. The strategy worked. A few days later, I completed my first shift, 10pm to 7am. Same again the following night. I was only on a part-time contract, but I was keen to keep working, so it wasn't long before I was there five nights a week. I was only required to attend lectures on Monday and Wednesday afternoons and managed to stay awake through most of them. The rest of my daytimes were spent sleeping, occasionally being woken by the chaos outside my room, but usually I was too knocked out to take any notice. Every few days I'd give Jenna a call from the payphone at the end of the corridor, but she never answered, so I had no idea where she was. This, by the way, was no cause for alarm. This was 1998. It's funny to think that five years later, Everyone would have a mobile phone and an email address. In less than 15 years, we'd all have smartphones in our pockets, the majority of which would have at least one social media account. I wasn't wishing for any of these things. It was slightly annoying not being able to contact my friend. Now and again, I'd go and knock on her door, but it was always a wasted trip. One afternoon, I was woken by someone banging on my bedroom door. Open up, lazy bones, Jenna hollered from the other side. It had been a couple of weeks since I'd seen her last. I climbed out of bed, unlocked the door, then slipped back under the duvet. 
she marched into the room and sat down on my legs. Ow, I said. Out late last night, she said. How's your head? It's not a hangover, I said. I've started working nights. Working? You mean reading Dickens? I've got a job in a hotel, I said. Good for you. It is actually, I said, or it will be when my first wage comes in. I wonder why I hadn't seen you in the library, she said. I was hoping we'd cross paths. I tried calling, I said. Maybe I should get a mobile. Everyone seems to have one now. When can we go out again? I don't know, I said. I'm working every night, sleeping all day, apart from when lectures are on. How are you going to get any essays done? Well, I can do them at work, I said. It's an absolute breeze. All I have to do is sit behind a desk and deal with an occasional late check-in or early departure. Now and again, someone will call me at 3am asking for a hairdryer and I'll take one up to their room. The rest of the time is free for studying. Apart from the unsociable hours, it's a very good job for a student. Sounds great, she said. I'll come and see you there. Now I know where to find you. Give me the address. She shoved a pen and paper in my hand. I jotted the details down. I'll let you get back to sleep, she said. Working again tonight? Yeah, I said. I'll see you tonight then, she said. Okay, I said. I'm not sure if you're allowed to just come and hang around with me at work, though. Of course I am, she said. There's no law against me walking in, and there's nothing wrong with you assisting me, a member of the public, with my inquiries. I suppose not, I said, and fell asleep again. That evening, Jenna sat on a bar stool at the customer side of my desk and launched into yet another discussion about holding buildings hostage. Historical sites are the easiest targets, she said. Minimal security, a castle is a fortress in itself. It wouldn't need the expense of an armed guard. How much damage can an intruder really cause? And why would they want to deface a historical building in the first place? We live under the assumption that no one would want to destroy Britain's castles. The whole thing would be too much trouble, way too expensive for a start and pointless. This is where we come in. We can really take advantage of all this. You keep saying we, I said. You don't have to be involved if you don't want to, she said, but I'm definitely going to do it. I just like talking to you about it. That isn't going to incriminate you in any way. If the police question you afterwards, feel free to tell them I was blathering on about holding castles hostage, but you assumed I was completely insane. Also, I made it very clear to you that was purely a hypothesis. But you also said you were definitely going to do it. But you didn't believe me because you thought I was mad. Right, okay, to be fair, I have suspected that for a while. Good. So, anyway, back to the plan. We'll start with the castles. Hold a few castles to ransom. Hang on, I said. Once you've done it once, held the castle to ransom and run off with the money, how and why would you do that again? 
for a start, shortly after you've pulled it off, it will become clear that the building is not rigged with explosives. You were calling their bluff, so the next time you call saying, remember me, the one who held Arundel Castle hostage, well, I'm doing the same thing with Warwick Castle now. Give me a billion quid. Not going to work, is it? I see what you mean, she said. I've thought of that, and there's a definite way round it. There's a way of making each hostage situation a credible threat. But I won't go into that here. It's a public place. Anyone could walk in. You don't mean... Instinctively, I lowered my voice to a whisper. You don't mean you're actually going to use explosives? Absolutely not, she said. Far too dangerous. Imagine if they went off by accident. What's this credible threat then? As I say, I can't tell you here. I'll tell you next time you're around my place. You're very mysterious, aren't you? I said. Thank you, she said. You were going to tell me how you got all your money, I said. I can't tell you about that either right now, she said. There's something I need to show you first and I haven't got it with me. I suppose you'll have to carry on being mysterious for a while then. Yes, I suppose so. Chapter 6 The following evening, Jenna came to join me at work again. I was halfway through The Great Gatsby, which I was kind of enjoying, but couldn't help feeling like I was missing the point. All the stuff about extramarital affairs reminded me of what Jenna said about her situation. I'm not a homewrecker, he's not a love rat, she's not a victim. My mind kept drifting off while I wondered exactly what she meant and who her super-rich partner was. Jenna dragged a bar stool across to the reception desk as she'd done the previous day and sat down opposite me. With a mysterious smile, she handed me a different book. It was a slim paperback with a bright blue cover. Its title illustration was a set of cartoon prison bars with the title written in big, bold, black font. How to get away with someone else's murders. There was something intriguing about it, also something rather baffling. I'd never heard of it before, despite a caption declaring number one bestseller. Is there a reason you're showing me this? I said. Yes, Jenna replied, still smiling. I want you to read it, and I want to watch you read it. Why would you want to do that? To see your reaction. What's it about? How to get away with someone else's murder? What's that supposed to mean? Murders, she corrected. Look at the S in the brackets. It still doesn't make any sense. It's all in the introduction, she said. Read the first page and you'll be totally clear as to what the book is about. Okay, I said. I opened the book, noticing for the first time that the author was listed as anonymous. The introduction went like this. 
You probably think going to jail for a series of crimes committed by someone else is a bad idea. In some respects, perhaps you're right. If you prefer to live a quiet life, keep yourself to yourself and depart this world with little trace of you having ever been here at all, this book is not for you. But if you've ever dreamed of overnight fame or notoriety or fantasized about having hundreds of women, I've replaced the original word with a term that's more to my taste, lusting after you. If you've dreamed of having books written about you or movies made about your life, if you've dreamed of going down in history and having your name remembered long after you're dead, this is definitely the book for you. I can't tell you my name. I'll be surprised if you haven't heard it. This book tells the story of how I successfully claimed responsibility for a string of unsolved murders, which led to me being branded one of the most notorious serial killers of all time. This is not a public confession of my innocence, I do not wish to be found innocent of those crimes. If I do that, I'll suddenly stop being one of the most notorious serial killers of all time and will instead be declared one of the most notorious fraudsters of all time. I would still be in prison, only this time for perverting the course of justice and much fewer women, I replaced the word again, would be interested in me. If you haven't given up reading yet, I am writing this book for you. I am telling you how I succeeded in getting away with someone else's murders so that one day perhaps you can do the same thing too. Jenna burst out laughing at that point. What's so funny? I said. Your face. Yeah, I said sarcastically, ha ha, seriously, why are you showing me this? It's completely insane. That's a perfectly natural reaction, and yes, I agree with you. You think this is funny? No, I thought your reaction to it was funny, that's all. Why? I'll tell you later, you need to read the book first. I'm not sure I can stomach it. There's nothing gruesome in there. This guy's pretty sexist though, isn't he? Try and look past that, she said. There's a specific target market for this book. Heterosexual men who are unappealing to the opposite sex. I see, and you think I fall into that category? No, of course you don't. Jesus, Frank. Okay, sorry. Still trying to figure out why I'm reading the book in the first place. Just read it, please. I'm trying not to laugh. I read on. In the early chapters, the anonymous author expanded on his thesis that being charged with multiple murders was a fun thing to do. And if you think about it, not committing murder is much more preferable to actually being a serial killer. In a section which began with the words, There's nothing I dislike more than an actual serial killer. The author dismissed this category of person as amateurs and idiots who deserved to go to jail. I mean, what were these people thinking? 
and just when you begin to think the author of How to Get Away with Someone Else's Murders has a genuine moral objection, he draws a clear distinction between convicted and unconvicted serial killers. Unconvicted serial killers, he argues, are to be admired and respected for two reasons. Firstly, they are clearly highly motivated, intelligent and hard-working, attributes which would normally be seen as enviable among the general population. Secondly, unconvicted serial killers played a vital part in the scheme the author is proposing, albeit unintentionally. In order to take credit for someone else's murders, you first need to identify the work of an unconvicted serial killer. And from this point, the author suggests, the hard work really begins. I looked up and studied Jenna's expression. No longer amused, she appeared to be fascinated. Do I really need to read all of this? It's a relatively short book, she said. Yes, but aside from the fact that it's completely insane, I can see exactly where it's going. Are you sure? Isn't it obvious this maniac, whoever it is, is about to outline his plan apparently based on his own personal experience, which frankly seems dubious? A plan that involves identifying unsolved crimes and fabricating evidence in order to take credit, as he calls it. Maybe, she says, or maybe there's a twist. I attempted to raise one of my eyebrows but couldn't quite manage it. Come on, Frank, it's a long shift. What else have you got to do? I have to man the phones. Oh, I can see it's ringing off the hook. I also need to finish The Great Gatsby. The great thing about Gatsby is you can read it tomorrow and it'll still be the same book. Why do I have to read your book today? I told you I want to see your reaction. Is this another one of your experiments? In a manner of speaking. You could just say yes, I said. I quite like the idea of it being an experiment. Okay, she said. Yes, it's an experiment. Fine. I continued reading. The author continued as I'd expected him to, launching into his detailed recommendations. He began with the most simple option, taking credit for one murder alone. There's absolutely nothing wrong with taking this option, the author explained. While you're unlikely to gain any real notoriety just for bumping off a single person, you'll still be a cold-blooded killer with a life sentence and no doubt plenty of women, that word again, will be interested in you. Better still, you'll have a good chance of eventually being released, which means your liaisons with the fairer sex will be far less restricted than they are within the prison system. Another advantage of taking this option is, quite simply, it is just about the easiest day's work you'll ever do. Seriously, you'll be in prison by lunchtime. Apparently, all that's required is to keep your eye on the news. 
when you see that someone in the local area has been murdered but no one as yet has been charged, simply make contact with the most likely culprit, confess to them your scheme and make the easiest bargain of your life. It'll be the partner, the author confidently declared. It's always the wife, the husband, the boyfriend or the girlfriend. Occasionally it's the lover which complicates matters but trust me, the person's actual partner is by far the safest bet. Unless the victim is a known drug dealer or a member of a gang, in which case my advice is stay well away. You are about to make the easiest deal of your life. Better to make that deal with some poor clown who accidentally battered his wife to death in a fit of drunken rage, then immediately regretted it, than a lifelong criminal to whom violent acts are an everyday event. The reader is advised to get in there before the cops do. If he hasn't been charged yet, a conviction is surely on the way. Don't approach him on the phone, turn up on his doorstep. Don't make a scene if he doesn't let you in. Just tell him calmly and in hushed tones that you know what he did and you have a plan to make it all go away. He won't need much convincing after that. He'll invite you inside. He'll probably offer you a cup of coffee. Maybe more out of habit than courtesy. Remember, this man will still be wary of you and you haven't even told him you intend to confess to the murder of his wife yet. Take your time with this conversation. Let him make you the coffee. Sit down with him and gently explain that for your own personal reasons you wish to go to jail for a very long time and for this reason you are volunteering to take responsibility for this terrible crime. He may ask you why you wish to go to jail for a very long time. My advice is do not go into any details. Reiterate that it's for personal reasons. If he presses you on the subject and refuses to budge, tell him you were recently convicted of shoplifting and the time that you spent inside turned out to be the greatest 14 days of your life. You want to move back in there full time, but you'd rather not kill anyone for the privilege. That's why you're willing to take on someone else's crime. Once he's satisfied with that, it'll be your turn to ask questions. And you will need to ask questions. Many, many questions. Get as much detail as possible. The only way to ensure your conviction is to find out exactly how this man committed his crime, where they were, what time it was, his choice of weapon, his half-hearted attempts to conceal the body before someone discovered it, and so on. In order for this man's story to become your story, there are three bases to cover. What, where, and how. Never ask why. Why is not important. And this will lead to this man revealing all sorts of unnecessary information. Whatever this man's reason for killing his wife is, you don't need to know because your reason for killing his wife will be different. Once you have a clear idea of how the murder was committed, it is time for you yourself to assume the role of killer. If necessary, you will need to work alongside this man to help him build an alibi of his own. Inevitably, at some point in this conversation, the man will suggest drawing up some kind of written agreement. 
quite reasonably, I suppose, he will want some kind of reassurance that if times get tough in jail, you won't turn around and point the finger at the actual culprit. I cannot stress this enough. Do not write anything down. Any written agreement can undoubtedly be used against you at a later stage, particularly if this man has an attack of guilt a few years down the line and decides to confess himself. In any case, a handwritten document which serves as an agreement between two parties to pervert the course of justice is no good to anyone apart from the authorities. That's exactly what you should tell him. Use those exact words. Use those exact words, said Jenna, interrupting. Eh? I said. That's the part you were on, right? How did you know? I can tell which part you're on from your expression. You do a little eye roll every time you get to a particularly excruciating part. Well, I'm glad you agree it's excruciating, I said, but it seems like you know the book incredibly well. I know it inside out, she confessed. Why? Finish the book, then I'll tell you. Ah, I said, hang on, do you have some kind of personal connection to this book? You could say that. Do you know who wrote it? She nodded. My God, I said. I can't tell you any more. You have to keep reading. I was interested now. I was willing to overlook the ridiculousness of what I was reading in order to satisfy my curiosity. I wasn't interested in the conclusion of the book itself, which would no doubt be as dreadful as the start of it. I needed to hear what Jenna had to say. What possible connection could she have to whichever maniac was responsible for writing How to Get Away with Someone Else's Murders? And so I read on. The next chapter was all about taking credit for multiple murders, a more complex option which involved carrying out extensive research into various unsolved crimes and building a convincing case that you yourself were responsible for each of them. According to Mr Anonymous, the only way to secure a conviction is for you to somehow have intimate knowledge of each of these murders. The public are only ever told part of the story. Where the body was found, where the victim was last seen, basic stuff that may be useful when appealing for witnesses, key details of the crime itself are kept from public view. Whenever some attention-seeking idiot who's read the story in the local paper turn up at the police station claiming to be responsible, the first thing the police will do is ask this idiot a series of basic questions about how he committed the murder without actually having any intimate knowledge of the crime itself. The idiot will improvise. He'll say whatever pops into his head that sounds vaguely convincing. He'll be charged for wasting police time. You, on the other hand, are not an attention-seeking idiot. You are going to do this right. In order to do this right, I'm afraid to say, you'll need money. A few thousand pounds should be all it takes. Ten grand at the most. You'll easily recoup that in the first print run of your autobiography. Why do you need so much? Haven't you guessed already? Come on, my friend, you're smart. You know this already. You need 
£10,000 in order to bribe a police officer. Where will I find a corrupt police officer? I hear you ask. A cynic might say, just walk into a police station and pick one. But you, my friend, are not a cynic. You know there's always the outside possibility that the officer you choose might turn out to be the one man on the force who's never accepted a bribe. But luckily for you, a corrupt police officer is really easy to find. All you need to do is find the closest pub to the police station. He'll be in there. He'll probably be there at lunchtime, but evenings are always a safer bet. Find yourself a nice quiet seat in the corner within earshot of as many conversations as possible. Your corrupt police officer will be close by and in a few drinks time he'll either be accepting a bribe or bragging to another corrupt police officer about all the bribes he's accepted that week. Once you've identified him, it's a matter of following him into the toilets, standing beside him at the urinal and whispering, I need as much information as possible on the murder of insert name here. I'll give you a thousand pounds cash. Only a thousand, I hear you ask. That's right, only a thousand. You have a budget of ten thousand pounds so that you can repeat this process nine more times if necessary. The author started waffling on about his own experiences for a while before hammering home his basic rules for taking credit for other people's crimes. The book actually got rather interesting during the middle section. There were some presumably accurate facts and figures about miscarriages of justice, deception and the behaviour of fantasists. This part seemed very well researched and lacked the brashness of the earlier chapters. Unfortunately, the book concluded with a crass and no doubt highly exaggerated account of the author's success with The Fairer Sex, since his incarceration, including several pseudo-pornographic accounts of his conjugal visits. He concluded with the words, So, if you want to be like me, and why wouldn't you? Let this book be your Bible. I'll see you on the inside. I closed the book and fanned myself in the face with it. I breathed a huge sigh of relief. It had taken four hours. Jenna was looking exhausted too, not surprising given that the sun was starting to rise. But it seemed like there was something on her mind that was tiring her out, and had been for a while. I really appreciate you reading that all the way through, she said seriously. I know you didn't enjoy it, so thanks for doing that for me. You're a real friend. Well, you got me intrigued, I said. I know. Come on then, I said. Don't keep me in suspense any longer. Who the hell wrote this book? Jenna didn't say anything. Instead, she looked me in the eye and slowly raised her right hand. Chapter 7 Explain yourself, I said. Well, said Jenna, 
You wanted to know how I came to be independently wealthy. You're a best-selling author. Was, she said emphatically. So how come you always seem so impressed by the fact that I want to be a writer, me, who hasn't actually written anything yet, while you're at the top of the charts? I was at the top of the charts, she said, very briefly. What happened? It kind of got banned. Kind of? Okay, not kind of, it did. You're actually breaking the law just holding that thing in your hand. Instinctively, I dropped it onto the counter. Careful with that, she said. It's a collector's item. Jenna, I said seriously, you said you'd definitely check with me next time you want me to participate in breaking the law with you. Didn't you say that? Calm down, she said. I sincerely doubt we'll be caught. It's the principle of the matter, I said. OK, she said. I'm sorry. I still don't understand why you insisted on me reading it all, and I have no idea why you would write this in the first place. It's misogynistic for a start. The narrator is misogynistic, she corrected. It's supposed to be satirical. I'll admit, I may not have fully understood how satire works, which is maybe why a few people got the wrong end of a stick, but in my defence, I was 17 years old. It took me a few seconds to do the maths. So, this was written seven years ago. Published the following year, 1992, available in bookshops for around three months, during which time it sold 200,000 copies. Can you believe that? Well, I'll take your word for it, but 200,000 copies, who the hell was buying it? Difficult to say, she said. The marketing of it was muddled, to say the least. I was a bored 17-year-old kid, and I wrote the whole thing as a joke. I thought it was quite funny at the time. I started making phone calls to publishers and literary agents, telling them they needed to read it. As you probably know, this isn't the done thing. You're supposed to write them a nice, polite letter. But a few of these people were happy to engage with me in conversation. It may have surprised them, this kid calling them up out of the blue, giving it the hard sell. I told them I was the next great literary sensation. The project had never been attempted by anyone before. As a result of these phone calls, I suddenly had eight or nine different professionals who were willing to read the manuscript in full. I sent each of them a copy, and one by one, they wrote back and declined. They wished me well in my future career, but my writing lacked sophistication and needed to be properly developed. I took exception to that lacked sophistication comment in particular. I got back on the phone to the agent who'd written that letter. He wouldn't speak to me, so I ended up yelling at his assistant. Of course it lacks sophistication. It's not me that lacks sophistication. It's the narrator. Well, to be fair, I probably lack sophistication too, but surely that puts me in a perfect position to write from the point of view of an unsophisticated person. What the hell is sophistication anyway? Does sophisticated just mean person who conforms to society's norms? If that's the case, I never want to be sophisticated. Tell your boss, thanks for the advice, but I'd rather ignore it and follow my own path. It felt good to get that off my chest. I didn't bother complaining about all the other rejection letters. I'd said what I had to say, even if the person I said it to had very little to do with any of it. I decided to forget the whole thing, and indeed that's what I did, getting distracted by other people's books, books that were better than mine. Then, a few months later, another letter arrived in the post. From the nine manuscripts I'd sent out, I'd received eight rejections. Judging by the lack of response, I assumed the ninth was a negative two. 
But no, the letter was from a small-time publisher called Derek Singe. Seriously, that was his name. He ran an independent imprint called Moot Point Press. He wanted to meet with me as soon as possible. I didn't have the money to travel to London. I didn't want to ask my parents. They didn't even know I'd written a book. I called Derek and explained this to him. He said that was fine. He could come to me. He took a train up to my hometown and bought me lunch in the Little Chef. He said he had an idea that would make the two of us a mountain of cash. The manuscript I'd sent him had me listed as the author. He said, wouldn't it be intriguing if we published the book as though it were a genuine account, that the advice your character is offering is 100% serious? I said that wasn't my intention. He said, I know that, but wouldn't it be remarkable if people didn't know that, if people actually took your words seriously? I couldn't figure out if he was a genius or a madman. Maybe he was both. Anyway, let's just say he doesn't work in publishing anymore. To be fair, it sounds like his plan was a roaring success, I said. Yes and no, said Jenna. Derek put tons of money into this project. He invested his life savings, as a matter of fact. The rules were I was strictly forbidden from talking about it to anyone. How to Get Away with Someone Else's Murders was published as a self-help book written by a real convicted criminal. But booksellers weren't willing to place the book in their self-help or true crime sections. They could apparently see that there was a market for the book. But no one was buying Derek's explanation that the narrator was an actual person. And so it appeared in bookshops in the humour section. So in answer to your question about who the hell was buying it, I'm not entirely sure. Presumably, some of those people saw it in the humour section and thought it looked funny. Possibly, there were others who picked up the book and mistook it for a self-help guide written by a criminal. As soon as it started selling in large numbers, folks in the industry started talking about the buzz it was creating. I still don't know what that means. I sincerely doubted that anyone who picked up that book would take it seriously for one second. But then... Jenna closed her eyes. But then, I prompted. She opened her eyes and blinked a few times. Did you ever hear the name Glenn Harkness? Don't think so. Well, he was front page news for a while. In 1992, he was convicted of four counts of murder, having walked into a police station and confessed. The murders were all unsolved cases, not previously thought to have been related. Harkness's account of each of the murders was consistent with the evidence the police had on file, evidence which had not been shared with the public. Harkness was described as a cold-blooded killer who displayed no remorse over what he'd done. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. Then one day, Harkness's brother contacted the police to say he'd found something that would appear to contradict this confession. In his brother's desk drawer was a copy of How to Get Away with Someone Else's Murders. There were extensive notes in the margin, in Glenn's handwriting. He'd highlighted several key quotes. Harkness had successfully followed the book's advice. He'd actually succeeded. Wow. Well, that must have been... I can't tell you what it was like, Frankie. I can't really think about it. In particular, I never think about what it must have been like for the families of the victims having some kind of closure, followed by a slap in the face. Their killer was nothing but a fantasist, aided and abetted by me, in a manner of speaking. Are you thinking about it now? No, all I'm doing is telling you that I'm not thinking about it. So, what happened next? 
Things moved very, very quickly after that. Books were pulled off the shelves and pulped. It was declared a criminal offence to own a copy of How to Get Away with Someone Else's Murders. But the weird thing was, this law was very quietly implemented, silently even. There was a total media blackout, so none of this was reported. Even the fact that Harkness wasn't guilty. As far as the press were concerned, the Harkness case was closed and the book did not exist. It was never referred to again. Derek was ordered to pay massive fines for his part in it all. He was threatened with imprisonment if he didn't reveal the identity of the author. So with profuse apologies, he did exactly that. I had to surrender my royalties too. Whatever money we made from the sales of the book were gone. Right. So you didn't actually make any money from sales of the book? I did, she said, just not in the way you think. The last time I saw Derek Singe, he turned up unannounced at my parents' house. He was about to leave the country. My mum and dad still had no idea I'd written that book. My dad actually purchased a copy of it, which I still find hilarious. Luckily, it was me who answered the door. My mum and dad were home, and if I let Derek inside, they'd want to know who he was. I told him I couldn't let him in the house. He said that was fine. He was off to the airport. But he had something for me first. He unzipped his hold-all and pulled out seven copies of the book, which he'd placed in individual protective plastic bags. He said, take these and keep them safe. I managed to rescue them before the rest got destroyed. I thought we'd go 50-50 on this. There are seven more surviving copies which I'm keeping hold of. I told him that was fine. I didn't fully understand what this deal was about anyway. He stressed again, keep these books safe, Jenna. I'm fully aware that they're worthless at the moment, but trust me, and I know I've said that before and let you down, but please do trust me on this. One day, these books will be worth their weight in gold. I've said we'll make a mountain out of cash out of this, and I still believe we will. All we have to do is sit and wait. What was that all about? I said. I had no idea at the time. I had no other option but to take his advice. I finished my A-levels and continued with normal life. Then, roughly a year after the Harkness case, over the summer, before I was due to go off to university, I started reading stories online about how to get away with someone else's murders. The book had only ever been published in the UK, and due to the controversy, there was no chance of it finding an overseas publisher. However, the UK was the only country that had ever banned it from being sold. It was perfectly legal to purchase a second-hand copy in the United States. By the sound of things, the book had attracted a cult following in the USA. There were still plenty of copies of the book in circulation. 200,000 of them were floating around, most of them sitting forgotten about in various British bookshelves, but others had somehow made their way across the pond and were much in demand. Anyone with a copy of the book could sell one online for 30 or $40 plus postage. So, you sold your copies? Jenna nodded, smiling. I sold my copies, she said but not for 30 or $40. I sold every one, apart from that one right there. I peered down at the book on the counter. Is there something special about this one? I said. You said it was a collector's item. Indeed it is. It's a second edition. You can tell it's a second edition because of that caption on the front. Number one bestseller. $30 copies are from the first edition, which didn't include that caption because they were printed before it became a hit. The second edition never made it to stores. 
as I said, the whole print run was pulped after the Harkness case. Aside from the 14 copies Derek managed to rescue from destruction. Don't ask me why, but there's something about this story that's really caught the attention of wealthy American book collectors. And because they're wealthy, they're willing to pay good money for an ultra-rare copy like this one. I made £100,000 just selling the first three. Whoa, I said. I decided against going to university, she continued casually. I bought my house and rented it out while I travelled around the world. I travelled for three whole years, then came back and did my masters. How did you get to do a masters without a BA? I applied on the basis of my publication history, not the murder book, obviously. I had a bunch of freelance articles published while I was travelling. I used my own name. Well done. So there you go, she said. That's my story. It's unbelievable, I said. I swear to you, it happened. Oh, I believe you. Listen, Frankie, she said. I know this is a lot to take in, and I guess you probably see me in a different light now. Well, you're still my friend, I said. Nothing's changed there. That's good. I was a bit worried you'd be freaking out or angry with what I did. Well, it's not like you killed anyone. True, but I screwed things up, mate, big time. And I'm worried that even now there are more men like Glenn Harkness out there scribbling notes in the margin of that book I wrote, making their plans based on my character's advice, and there's nothing I can do about it. What if you made some kind of statement, I said, formally announced that you're the author of the book, say you wrote it as a joke? I've considered that, she said. I honestly don't think anyone would believe me. As I was saying, the book has a very specific target market. Derek was very clear on that when he came up with the marketing plan. Not only that, he was very clear that we'd make lots of money by exploiting that particular demographic, telling them exactly what they wanted to hear. In the UK, the target market consisted of people like Harkness. Young, heterosexual men with limited social skills, frustrated at their inability to form relationships with the opposite sex, which has led to a deep hatred of women, possibly uses sex workers, definitely has a large porn collection. In America, this demographic is exactly the same, except for one key difference. Harkness's US equivalents are probably, and maybe this is a prejudicial assumption on my part, I don't know, but I strongly suspect Harkness's US equivalents are armed to the teeth. A gun for every day of the week, maybe every day of the month. Imagine how these people might react if they found out the book they've been treating like the Bible was written by a 17-year-old girl. Imagine how a deeply frustrated woman-hater with a cabinet full of lethal weapons might react to that information. Maybe you're letting your imagination run away with you, Jenna. I'm not sure I am. Even if what you're saying is correct, this isn't your doing. You didn't create these people. You didn't tell them to go out and buy a gun. There's nothing about guns in your book. Jenna shrugged. True. And for that reason, I'd like to think my book is encouraging these young sociopaths to turn away from their arms. At least, if they're plotting to pervert the course of justice, they'll be less likely to go crazy and shoot up a shopping mall. You can call that a bright side, maybe. Well, there's always a bright side. Jenna looked over her shoulder through the glass entrance doors. It was light outside now. She breathed a long sigh. Well, that was a long night, she said. I'd better go home and go to bed. Well, don't forget your book, I said. 
Why don't you keep hold of it? She said. I laughed. Hey, <laughs> you actually think I'm going to read this load of garbage again? No offence, but no thank you. What I meant was, this is my gift to you. Take care of it. It's very expensive. And you could sell it for a six-figure sum if you wanted. A six-figure sum, I said. In other words, you're giving me a hundred grand. No thanks, mate. I appreciate the gesture, but this is yours. It's your book, your money. I've made enough from it, she said. And frankly, I'm sick of the sight of the thing. Just take it, Frankie. It would mean a lot to me if you take it. Okay, I said, tucking it into my jacket pocket. Careful, don't bend the pages. You'll literally knock thousands off the price. I'm not going to sell it, I said. I'll keep it. Do what you like with it, she said. It's yours. Thank you for listening. This is getting interesting, right? Part two tomorrow. The actual physical book and also the ebook version of Getting Away With It can be purchased from Amazon. Follow the link in the show notes. The full audiobook can be downloaded from Bandcamp for Name Your Price. Throw a bit of money my way if you want to. I will see you soon. Thank you.